learning from the European city, from On and Around Architecture, 10 Conversations by Sergison Bates Architects. This conversation between Roger Dina, Stephen Bates and Jonathan Sergison, July 2020. It seemed fitting to begin our conversations with an architect we've held in high regard since visiting the exhibition of his work organised by the Architecture Foundation in London in 1992. We continue to find his buildings inspiring and The House and the City is one of the most well-thumbed books in our library. We have over the years visited many of his buildings and always find them to be precise in their urban character. We got to know Roger Dina when both of our studios were working on buildings for the Novartis campus in Shanghai between 2008 and 15. In 2016, we collaborated on a competition project for the new museum in London, of London in Smithfield Market, London. And while our entry was unsuccessful, what emerged was a strong shared approach to the reuse of existing buildings. Jonathan. In this conversation, we'd like to address what we feel is one of the core interests of both our practices that you have so well exemplified over the years. That is the importance of considering urban issues in our work and the notion that any architectural project is connected to a wider, wider urban discourse. Your body of work extends to many European cities and your projects have much wider reach than Basel or indeed Switzerland. I can immediately list Berlin, Amsterdam, Malmo, Paris, Warsaw and Turin as locations where you have built. As London architects who set out in practice in 1996, we were always impatient to look beyond the borders of our own country. This was in part out of necessity, but also the result of a certain curiosity. As a starting point, it'd be good to share our thoughts on why we look to Europe and how we see ourselves as European architects. Roger. First of all, European architecture is our biographic condition, and that also means that it's part of our education. My personal professional education with architects like Luigi Schnozzi and Aldo Rossi at ETH Zurich focused my interests and experience on European architecture and how European cities renew themselves. I'm steeped in the tradition of European architecture and its heritage, and it's a very strong personal experience. I need to experience that depth, the origin of the city. Stephen, one of the recurring challenges to the pleasure we find in the European city is the question of how to address scale. How do we modify what we have experienced and enjoyed in the past, the scale of buildings, the spaces between buildings and the scale of these spaces? And how do we transfer these atmospheric qualities to a contemporary situation? What is quite different now is the challenge to make bigger, longer, wider buildings, whether for development reasons, for health and safety, rights of light and these kinds of things. Jonathan and I have often quoted and been inspired by what you wrote in The House and the City with Martin Steinman. In it you say, town planning attains its essence in those situations where it can bring order with one house. There's a lot in this statement. One aspect is how to retain and build upon the often quite intimate situations we see in the European city now. 
What should we do when the floor plate gets deeper and that spatial proximity that we all enjoy is more and more difficult to find? I wonder if that's a concern for you because obviously that statement you made a very in that statement you made a very bold declaration which I would interpret to mean that working with big scale you can just adjust and reorder the fabric. Roger. What we speak about of course is experience we share and it has to do with those cases where you risk destroying the pattern and the morphology that offers that specific quality you described beautifully. Still, this is a difficult case. Often we are asked to transform an industrial pattern into the kind of urban space condition that we are keen to create. European cities achieved quite large scales in the late 19th century, once city walls were torn down. There were great achievements with boulevards and the kinds of volumes and spaces that we experience as very urban, large-scale schemes. So this conflict is one where we risk destroying the urban pattern by exposing it to large new buildings. And this is just one threat, and it's not always the only one. Our concern over the last few years has often been working with these huge buildings. They are very often combined with the poverty of the social program and uh, the constraints that limit the possibility of developing dense, complex buildings. These are mainly office buildings for developers where you're asked to organise uh, not much more than core and shell. This, in combination with those terribly large structures, creates very problematic conditions. Still, we gain experience in organising the complex architectural programs that we are asked to design. We still feel that it is easier to work with large-scale programs than to be asked to design unspecific large buildings. So I would say that we cannot discuss issues of urban morphology without discussing architectural issues themselves. Jonathan. When we talk of the city, housing is inevitably part of the conversation. As we all know, housing accounts for the largest proportion of the land surface of any city, and in, deal in both our practices, this has been a core concern, dealing with the normative program of the city. I have thoroughly enjoyed reading your latest book, Dina and Dina Architekten, Wohnungsbau, a long-awaited book, a long-awaited look at your housing work over your career. It feels like the next step after the house in the city that Stephen has already referred to. There were two aspects of it that I thought were particularly striking. One was how systematic you've been in the way that you've organised the plans of apartments. There is an incredibly rigorous and thorough evolution of arrangements. And in the discussion, I also enjoyed the comment about your insistence that in designing an apartment, the room should offer variable arrangements. The other is the discussion about the making of facades, which I would like to return to later. But in terms of the question of the plan, I remember our early work and those first projects in London where space standards were really horrible. We worked under great pressure to organise the plan for apartments that are maybe 42 square metres for a one-bedroom flat and 60 square metres for a two-bedroom apartment. Early projects like Shepherdess Walk, Seven Sisters Road and Crediton Road, which are all social housing projects, needed to conform to very stringent space standards. 
And yet Stephen and I have always enjoyed the notion of the room as the basis for making apartments. In fact, that comes out of experience because a corridor occupies too much of those precious square metres for a purpose that isn't so useful. But our interest and fascination was with domesticity and with the plan as the basis for speculating on how we can live in a city. Perhaps that Perhaps that's something you want to pick up, Stephen. I know you're very interested in this, Stephen. Yes, I'm really interested in this issue. I guess I would describe it as the shape of the plan and the sense of the plan. For years, we've looked at your work and often studied the plans and observed how they're layered with subtle complexities. There's a cartographer's beauty and control in a graphic sense as a drawn thing. It has a good shape when you look at it. As a teacher, you know how it is when you have always have to re- react to drawings quickly. You learn that you can already feel a good plan almost before you study exactly where the doors are and other details. You can feel it. And in your plans, you can always feel it. You can feel that kind of control and subtle hierarchy. There's always been a debate between us and it has often created a certain intellectual friction about what initiates the directive of the plan. I think we probably learnt from you and others a kind of instinct for finding the shape that has balance. But then when you look at the work of let's call them more eccentric architects like Caccia Dominioni or others, you sense a different kind of process of thinking, one which is more about the sense of the plan. This is how I think of it, shape and sense, the idea of a central understanding of space. It is a little bit like when we encourage our students to design only with a physical model and to make an apartment with a model only, and then later we say, now survey the model to find the plan, a plan you probably wouldn't draw on a computer to begin with. I'm fascinated with this friction and it has come up a lot in our more recent projects where we're trying to experiment with the shaping of plans, where we're trying to place ourselves in the room and spatially connect outwards. It's nothing to do with the act of drawing. There's no right or wrong answer particularly, but I enjoy that friction. In every project, there is this question, where does the plan come from? Does the plan come from reaction to the edges of the volume? which are reacting to the facade, or is there an inner structure that organizes the plan? Does this energy, does the energy between the two geometries meet at the facade, or is it almost an autonomous plan that generates itself? In more recent projects, we've explored less orthogonal rooms and constellations of interconnecting rooms of different shapes that create apartments. The project on Fitzjohn's Avenue strongly represents uh, this approach. I'd love to hear your reaction to this speculation. Roger. We start with what is an almost ideal, I think, trying to reach a balance between the urban design conditions and the geometric organization of a floor plan in housing. I think of our first project on Hammerstrasse, where the houses were organized as symmetric square types, uh, 4.6 by 4.6 meters each and organized using the golden section everywhere with a kind of diagonal that creates a transversal space on one side and a kind of insert with an entrance, the bathrooms, so on. Our second scheme on Rhinenring was not so academic. 
by the way, that was when Livio Vecchini and Luigi Snozzi thought I'd lost my passion for architecture. They did not say that to me directly, but I learnt from Flora Rucha that they discussed this with her. She told me about the discussion they had had because she loved the new scheme much better. From then on, our vision for an apartment developed. We've always had the same understanding about what it means to live, to dwell, to appropriate space to live. These first projects were really designed and we concentrated entirely on that experience. With the St Alban Tile Scheme, there was a shift where we introduced morphologic patterns that came from the early industrial buildings that surrounded the site. We wanted to let the apartment experience the structure of these different kinds of buildings. The different organisation of these early industrial building structures that affect the experience and spaces for living. To us, they seem to create an even more interesting experience for the apartments than just thinking about how the apartment itself should be organised in a modernist way. The latest of that series was a, the House for Athletes in Turin for the Olympic Games of 2006 at the site of a former fruit and vegetable market. Here, the arrangement of the apartments has an almost informal quality. They are interlocked, enmeshed. Each living unit spreads itself out until it hits up against the next one. They're almost like squatters, and something similar before Turin was the project we organised in Amsterdam. With these two very different experiences, we attempted to meet specific demands. Sometimes we ourselves set up constraints, even when they were not given by the brief. For instance, in Turin, we said that for athletes, taking care of their body is the most important. So we made bathrooms the same size as other rooms. The bathrooms also access the same large window. Or in Amsterdam, where we designed a courtyard that was not arranged for a more communicative experience in housing for traditional families only, but also with other types of cohabitation. There we introduced an almost scenographic condition for living, opening the collective balcony onto the inner court, while individual rooms are organised at the periphery of the plan. This gave us the conditions to create that overall shape. Stephen. Both the projects in Amsterdam and Turin used a tunnel form construction, didn't they? So there's a strong link between the organisation of space, the scale of space and the construction process. Looking at the early Hammerstrasse project, I was thinking that there is a strong sense of the plan of the 19th century part of the city. In the Munich plan project we've been developing at TU Munich, drawing the ground floor plan of different parts of the city, you sense there's an urban structuring to the room making. There is a link to the spans of things also as the walls are where they are because they couldn't be placed any further apart. When the students draw a plan of a building from the 1970s, it is completely different, of course, because the scale of the spans and the thicknesses of things had changed by then. I was just wondering about that relationship between construction and the plan, which is clearly important to you. In Turin, did the plan come before the construction strategy or was it the other way round, would you say? Roger. 
I think it's really a design issue. As a matter of fact, we decided to design the structure first, keeping in mind apartment sizes, of course, considering the size of units we would need to achieve, and then try to shape the apartments to the conditions determined by the structure. We were free, of course, to choose how to proceed. It was our own decision to work in that way. By the way, you know the kinds of late 19th century morphologies, those more rectangular, rather small spaces. They are very beautiful, but unfortunately they no longer work because later floor heights were reduced to gain more floors. Those spaces are still very beautiful and they don't need to be very big as long as they are high enough. When they are, say, uh, 3.5 by 3.5 metres, they're still very beautiful, as long as the height of the room is still 2.8 metres or so. But they look quite poor if the height of the room is 2.4 metres and if the window doesn't have the quality to react to the space. So a lot has been lost. I would still feel completely comfortable in the spaces of these apartments. They are beautiful spaces and they are so perfectly shaped with those beautiful vertical windows. Yes, uh, contemporary architecture did not only improve things, I guess. Jonathan, you mentioned windows. I remember standing with Stephen in front of a facade of your long building in Amsterdam, looking with fascination at the smallest shift that occurs from one window to the other, so that they're not aligned vertically. It's the subtlest of decisions, but such a vital one. We both, we both thought it was a striking decision. One of the books we came across at the time we were teaching at ETH was Stadansichten, where you look at windows. For me, it's a very profound study because it considers the window as a negotiator between the private domestic world of an apartment and the urban dimension. The impact of positioning of windows in a facade has on its surroundings. In our teaching, we give a certain priority to the facade of projects. We know it's really tough on students, but our argument is that the facade of a building has a very public role, and it is in this sense that a housing project serves the city and contributes to its decorum. When the program is housing, it is clear that we must ask how loud our expressive a facade is. Again, this is something that we've learnt from looking at your work. Roger, Dina. Our first concern is to offer windows that would create the possibility of experiencing the surrounding urban space, while at the same time retaining the quality of a protected interior space. We like to find that kind of balance. This is the most important issue for, for us. The facade comes second. Given these conditions, we feel really free to figure out the design of the house and its position within the city and the street. And of course, as one can see, we're not looking for some spectacular kind of presence, although we believe it's important for a new house to have a strong autonomous character, which can contribute to the overall quality of an urban site. Some of our projects look more daring than others, but there is not much difference in the intention behind them, I guess. Stephen, it's interesting the way you describe the window needing to protect the room. It reinforces our shared interest in the room. Roger. 
This is also part of a dialogue. When we designed a school building in the city and we suggested really large windows, we worked with the artist Peter Sutter, who suggested that the colours of the room should balance the colours of the experience of looking outside and seeing the colours of the houses opposite, so that they would become present through those larger windows. Operations of that kind seemed very important to us. Larger windows allow that exchange between the interior and the exterior space. It is an additional experience, and one could say that this is a game we play in modern architecture. The traditional window denies you that experience, that kind of exchange, unlike contemporary ones. Still, our windows never completely dissolve the experience of the interior space. They are not all wall size. You will still be experiencing the interior space for itself. In the last two or three years, we've also been working a lot on the experience of the space of the window itself, with bay windows and other types, so this is an additional issue for us now. Jonathan. In our own work, we've tended to give priority to windows that are upright, and I wonder if this is because of our familiarity with the London Georgian house. The experience that we have of the sash window with its horizontal division but I think this also serves us as in smaller rooms it allows more flexibility in their positioning. Roger. Yes I think we share that experience. We too use large horizontal windows sometimes though rather less in our more recent work. We think that the experience of the vertical window is beautiful, and in the debate between Le Corbusier and Auguste Perret about that issue, I always felt rather closer to Perret, and to his beautiful observation that the vertical window reflects the shape of the human being. It is also a matter of light. I think that light is much more interesting when it creates a very different experience through the day, and if the window is more like a French window, then the light reaches the floor, and its flow is much more interesting than with a horizontal window. Stephen. This question comes up time and time again. Where should the window rest? Where does it come down to? As you say, it's nice to offer a French window where you could step out, but in doing so, the room, which is sometimes a small space, is broken by the window dropping to the floor. We often debate whether it's stronger to lift the window by 10 or 15 centimetres to retain the edges of the room. The window is then placed within the wall, but of course this can create its own difficulties because then you can stand on that window sill and that means the balustrade has to be higher. And the balustrade is then half the size of the window, which is not so nice. I'm sure that kind of merry-go-round happens in both our offices. Roger. We are wrestling with the same issues always, and we don't use traditional French windows very often because they pose practical issues. For instance, if the border around the window is less than 12 centimetres, we don't have to count this as a step. There are, of course, all those issues, but I'd like to say that the quality of light is still strong when you have a window that almost reaches the floor. It doesn't have to actually touch the floor and then and there does not need to be a traditional real door. It can still be a window. Stephen, do you remember, Jonathan, when we went uh, together to Maneg, a scheme master plan by Roger with work by Peter Mackley, EM2N, uh, and EM2N to the west of Lake Zurich? Jonathan, Green City, Maneg, Stephen. This project, project takes us back to the main subject of our conversation, 
the urban situation and raises a number of interesting issues in relation to the European condition. The Green City project is neither the industrial fabric nor the fabric of the urban centre we talked about. It is the periphery and it deals with ideas about environmental sustainability. When I studied the master plan, what I found was this beautiful C-shaped open courtyard block that faces outwards towards the landscape. It had been inspiring to me in the work we are doing in other projects in London, where there are often competitions or bid for difficult areas that attempt to connect with the green landscape of the city where it creeps in from the edges. The challenge is how to develop settlements that create community and a kind of urban entity on the one hand, but also an openness to the landscape on the other. I just wondered whether you think that quite, that quite unique project may be part of a shift in thinking, probably dictated by necessity uh, towards a different type of planning brought about by both environmental concerns and density requirements. Roger. That master plan was a difficult task and it was developed in different phases. I would say that the density is almost problematic. It's very dense. And of course, our experience with those kinds of developments is that while we would like to create a kind of urban experience, the project is basically all about housing and we still have to fight to have at least one ground floor dedicated to public spaces and functions that communicate that. Still, that is something completely different from what we experience in the traditional European city. We were very uncertain with this master plan as the developers were pushing in a very different direction. Of course, we tried to react to that. What is quite striking, however, is the way this kind of development is linked to the landscape. Just behind these buildings on one side, we have the built landscape, while on the other side, the plan follows the railway line so that it still has aspects that are not urban. This may be even more interesting than what we tend to look for when we're trying to create urban patterns. And we ask ourselves what the consequences of such a scheme can be. Stephen. I think this is relevant to our conversation as we bring it to a close, which is about learning from the European city. We are naturally quite nostalgic, but the reality is that most of the time we're trying to make sense of what is embedded in the places that we know, while we're working with a very different set of conditions than in the past. The question is how to make sense of those places and to retain our loyalty to the European city, how to translate those old ideas into such a new situation. Part of the answer is how we address scale, a new scale to that of the European city as we remember it. To me, it's a fascinating reality that we face now. Jonathan. There is always the pressure of density. One is left with the sense that the European city remains a very vital source of inspiration and holds many lessons that are still relevant today. As you said at the beginning of the conversation, Roger, we have much to learn from the rich urban fabrics we've worked in with their different and unique qualities. It's a great privilege to live at a time where it is possible to work further afield than where we come from, but it is only by learning about local building cultures and adapting to different needs and conditions that our work can be relevant.